Welcome back, everyone, and thank you for joining us for today's podcast from Dublin First Baptist Church in Dublin, North Carolina. We hope you'll be encouraged today as you listen to our message. For more information, please visit our website at www.dublinfbc.org. That's www.dublinfbc.org. Now let's join the congregation of Dublin First Baptist as we listen to the preaching of God's Word. Before we get to our passage tonight, uh, would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, thank you for what you have here in the book of Philippians. Just pray, Father, that you'd allow us to engage your word well, that uh, your spirit would do its work and we'd leave this place changed because of what you say. I ask all these things in your name. Amen. So turn with me this evening to Philippians 2, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11 together. That's Philippians 2, 1 through 11. And we'll be looking at this letter that Paul writes to the church at Philippi. This church, uh, this letter that Paul writes is in the context of a persecuted church. This is one of Paul's prison epistles, and it's probably written late in his time in prison there in Rome. And he's going to be sharing some of the burdens that he has for this church. He's worried because he thinks that there might be the seeds of disunity going on. There might also be some false teaching um, that's adding to the problems. So he's going to be focusing on the humanity of Christ in these brewing problems um, that he sees. And he wants to highlight this theme of humility. So let's think about what this might look like from a historical perspective. In March of 1783, word began to circulate in the camp of the Patriot Army um, that there might be an officer's rebellion. I know this is going to be pretty shocking for you guys, but apparently Congress had made financial promises to the Army that they weren't really making good on. So... I know, shocking. I'm going to let that one lie. But in the midst of this, rumors start to spread. And they're encouraged by another general in the camp. And the officers begin to think, you know, we should really do something about this. Because the context is that the year before, a treaty had been signed of peace with Britain. But the army had to stay in camp to make sure that the treaty was put in force. So what you had was an angry officer corps an idle army with lots of time and lots of anger. That's a recipe for disaster. So Washington gets wind of this, and he calls an officer's meeting, and they all meet together in a room, and he begins to speak to them. He encourages them, you know, guys, don't go down this road. Congress is listening. They're going to do something about this, and nobody's really paying attention. So Washington gets done with what he has to say, and he's going to finish the time by reading a letter from one of his friends in Congress just to encourage the officers that Congress has not forgotten about them, that they will make good on their promises one day. So he pulls the letter out, and he puts it on the podium, and he hesitates for a minute. And from his coat pocket, he pulls a pair of spectacles and puts them on his face. And he addresses the crowd and he says, gentlemen, I've grown old in the service of my country and now I'm going blind. 
most of these men had never seen him with spectacles on. They'd only ever seen him on the battlefield. He'd always looked strong in front of them, and they didn't realize all those years of service, what they had done to him. So he read the letter, but it really didn't matter at that point. Because as Washington read with those spectacles on, those officers began to weep and began to think about what their commander had given up for the country. They thought about what it was like to retreat from New York. They thought about those hard winters at Valley Forge and Morristown. They remembered walking barefoot in the snow, but they also remembered the exhilaration of seeing the flags of surrender by the British at Saratoga and most recently at Yorktown. And as they reflected on that and all that Washington had given up for them, all thought of rebellion just melted away. And Congress came to a provision and there was no more talk of marching on Congress. See, when we think about humility, arrogance generally drives people apart, but humility draws people together. When we think about that, let's think about this humility that Paul's going to talk about here in this passage. First, let's look at our call to humility together. Look with me at verses 1 through 4. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. So this is our call to humility here. Paul's worried about the potential disunity that's showing itself in the church at Philippi. And he sees the danger of this false teaching that might be taking place. So when he encourages the church to strive for unity, he's quick to orient them on the right foundation. See, he doesn't want his argument just to be any argument. He wants it to be an argument that's based upon a foundation that's never going to fail. And he chooses Jesus for that. So he wants to bring them back to the right way of thinking about the matter. And he establishes his call for humility in three important ways. See, first, he orients his call in relation to Jesus. He wants to make sure he's rooted on the firm foundation of who he is. And he poses this rhetorical question and says, is there any comfort in Christ? Of course there is. This is a body of believers who's experienced what it's like to go from death to life. They were um, unbelievers. They heard the story of Christ and they embraced what he had to teach them. So now they have this orientation based off the relationship with they that they have with who he is. When you're delivered from death to life through the gospel, it begins to color everything else that you think about. And he goes on to capitalize on this by not rooting the argument in the comfort that's found in their relationship with Christ alone, but he also moves on and talks about their common identity. Because not only are they comforted in Christ, but when they became members of that body of believers, they placed saving faith in Jesus and they were adopted into a new family. 
It didn't mean that they lost any of their uniqueness or the individuality that God had created them in or where they came from or anything like that, but they gained something else. They gained a new identity in Christ, and because of that, that new identity in Christ should outweigh the other identities that they've been given. So when they were adopted into the new family, everyone in that church, all other believers in the world became both their brothers and their sisters. Christ is their source of comfort and he's their source of their ultimate identity. So everything coming next is in the context of family. Because they're family, that should mean something when they're working out their differences. So we often say we can choose our friends, but we can't choose our family, right? Just like it's true in our own families, it's true in the church. Because we've all decided to follow Christ individually, but because of that, now we're all in community together. If we see ourselves rightly in the community of believers, if we see ourselves as sinners that have been saved by grace, and we see other people that way, that begins to put us in the right mindset to battle against disunity, right? Paul's call becomes a little easier because we view each other as fellow believers. So then he goes on in verses 3 and 4 by finishing his call. And he wants to show that when you get the first part right, then it leads to a humbler attitude and a better orientation to work things out with others. In light of what Paul has said before, now he's asking the church to reject, or reject selfish motivations in their decision-making and also to think of others. He's calling them to a posture of humility and by extension, all believers as well. Sometimes we get this idea of biblical humility a little bit skewed. And we think about it in terms of thinking less of ourselves. That in order to experience humility, we need to um, overemphasize our flaws. We need to put ourselves down. Right? Anybody ever experienced that kind of call to humility? That's not what the Bible's talking about. It's not so much in thinking less of yourself. It's more about thinking of yourself less and thinking of others more in the context of our identity in Christ. So we're called to think of others more. We're called to think of others in light of us all being sinners saved by grace. But Paul goes on. Not only is he going to give them a call to humility, now he's going to double down on the example. So that's how he moves on here in verses 5 through 8. Because he's already called them to humility, but now he's going to look at this example again. And the example is going to be Christ. And he's going to give a deep description of who he is. Starting in verse 5, he writes, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. As Paul calls the Philippians to humility in light of their, or in light of their relationship with Christ, he wants to reiterate this example of Jesus. 
And he gives this worshipful description of the person uh, of Christ. He wants to highlight for us Christ's humanity. And he wants to ask the people to consider their relationship to each other and focused on who Christ is. See, Paul describes how Christ is divine. He's part of the Holy Trinity, the one triune Godhead. He's equal with God, but even in light of that, he doesn't view his equality with God as something to be grasped for personal gain, but instead he is humble to follow the plan that the Father has laid out. So he's equal with God, but he doesn't hold on to his position. Instead, he's willing to empty himself and take on the form of a servant. And that word can be rendered bondservant. It can also be rendered slave, according to the plan. What he's talking about here is that that unique moment in history. We have Jesus, who is fully God. He is fully God from eternity past. He is there in the Godhead, and at a moment in time that we're going to celebrate here in a few weeks at Christmas, God says, all right, it's time to enact the plan. And he joins fully divine Jesus, or fully divine Son of God, with full humanity. So Jesus is now forevermore, both fully God and fully man. And that means a lot for us. In the incarnation, Jesus humbles himself even to the point of death on our behalf for both our good but also God's glory to follow the plan of salvation. When we think about these verses, lots of theological assertions and debate have come about from that one little phrase there in verse 7. What exactly does Paul mean by Jesus emptied himself? Does Christ lose some of his divine attributes or his divine powers? Does Christ um, somehow become limited in his divinity? No. None of that can be true because he's eternal. He's the son of God. He's the second person of the Trinity. So it must mean something else. What Paul is referencing here is the idea that Christ, in a sense, lost by addition. Because now, not only was he fully God, but also he took on full humanity in the person of Christ. And because of that, he took on all the frailties of being human. So he experienced everything that we experience, but the Bible's very clear, he experiences all that without sin. So we have the person and work of Christ to be our example. In the incarnation, Jesus was both fully God and fully man. And he didn't lose anything from his divine identity. But in taking on flesh, he took on the identity with the created things and the created beings. Isn't that comforting? When you think about the things we go through, think about... um, Even simple things like betrayal, hunger, tiredness, all those kind of things. When Christ became both fully God and fully man, he now experienced all those things, but crucially without sin. See, Paul's highlighting his humanity in this passage. 
And it was because of that fact and because of the sinless life that he lived that he could serve as the ultimate sacrifice for our sin. And by his death and burial and resurrection, he defeated forever sin and death and hell on our behalf for all of us that trust him for salvation. When we look at this passage, this passage is actually viewed as a hymn. It's describing the incredible nature of Christ's incarnation. And we're left to ask this question, why would Paul use a hymn to describe something so important? Because I think we all know that if you can sing it, you can remember it. Right? Why do I know the colors in Spanish? Azul, rojo, blanco, violeta, amarillo, anaranjado, verde y rosa. Uno vez más. Why do I know that? I know that because 20 years ago when I was in Spanish 1 in high school, a teacher taught me that song. Songs stick with you. So if you can sing it, you can remember it. And in a lot of ways, if you can sing it, it's better than just memorizing something. Because... Songs allow us to process information, right? So Paul wants to use a hymn here. He wants to highlight this for the church because it's something that they can remember. When we can sing truths, it helps us remember that sometimes memorization cannot. And in the early church and the period before the Middle Ages, one of the most important things that they discussed was how to properly describe what it meant for Christ to be both fully God and fully man. Paul wanted to make sure that the church at Philippi knew the real Jesus, that he knew the Christ that had come because that was crucial to everything else. They needed to rightly talk about it. And Paul is highlighting Christ's humanity in this book, in Philippians, but in the next book, in Colossians, he's going to emphasize Christ's divinity. Because a lot of times when you think about the heresies of the early period of the church, what would happen is somebody would either lend too much weight to Christ's divinity or too much weight to his humanity. So what they were trying to do was come together and decide this is, this is what it means according to what God's revealed to us in Scripture. See, walking daily with Jesus and reflecting him to others is the cornerstone of what it means to be a true disciple of Jesus Christ. So when we look at this, we've seen a call to humility, and we've seen an example of humility. But now let's look at a result of humility. See, the previous verses, 5 through 8, they're the beginning of the hymn. But now, with 9 through 11, that's the ending of the hymn. So he's talked about Christ's humanity and what it meant for him to surrender to death on the cross. Now, in verse 9, he begins this way. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Christ's humility has now led to his exaltation because it draws people to worship both him and the Father because like we're going to celebrate in a few weeks at Christmas, Christ has already come as our suffering servant. 
But praise God, very soon he's going to return as our conquering king. And at that point, everybody will sing this. They will say that Jesus Christ is Lord. Those of us that have trusted Christ for salvation will say it out of joy. Those that have not will say it out of terror. Because this is the reality. The reality is that Christ is Lord. And how you're able to react to that is based off whether you've trusted him for salvation or not. All are one, one day going to worship Christ, both for his glory and our good. And the result of humility is worship. But it's also a solution to the problems that the Philippians are facing and even for us today. See, when you know who Jesus is properly, when you have a right focus on the Lord, then you begin to see yourself rightly and you begin to see others rightly as well. When you know the real Jesus, when you know the real person and work of Christ, then it changes around all your priorities. It changes around the core of your being and it changes around how you view other people. So when it comes to terms like unity with other believers, it becomes a no-brainer at that point in a lot of ways. Because we're all family. We're all united in Christ. We have all been taken from death to life. What else is to worry about? Our eternity is secure, so now we get to reflect that to the rest of the people around us by the way we interact with each other. So it solves the problem of the unity and the disunity that he was afraid was affecting the church. But it also protects the church from succumbing to the false teaching. Because when, again, when you know the real person and work of Christ, when you know what the authentic picture is, when you know what God's word says about who Jesus is, then it becomes a lot easier for your spiritual spidey sense to start going up when you hear things that aren't quite right. Because you say, you know, you're saying this, but I remember reading that. And I, I don't think the two line up really. So I'm going to go with what this says instead of what you said. When you know the real thing, it really helps you to be able to guard against the counterfeit theologies that this world tries to offer. See, Paul wants us to know the real Jesus. When we go out into the world, there's a lot of people that are okay with using Jesus' name, but they don't want it to line up with what that says. What they want to do is say, well, this Jesus over here, eh, I don't know about that, but believe in Jesus if he's a, uh, you can believe in Jesus if he's Jesus, the um, social justice warrior. You can believe in Jesus if he's like a kindly grandfather that's just going to give you everything that you want. But if you believe in a Jesus who came and lived and died and raised from the dead, then they've got a problem. But when you know the real Jesus, you can guard against those counterfeit theologies. As a whole church, we're called to worship in unity. We have a common identity in Christ, and Christ is guarding our hearts against false teaching. And this is the message to believers here tonight, but also, or it's the message to believers because when we talk about this authentic Jesus, when we talk about unity, when we talk about identity in Christ, 
It's only for those that have a right relationship with him. And that comes only by trusting Christ in faith, by repentance of sin, and by submission to his lordship in your life. That's the message for them, and it's the message for us. Maybe you're here tonight, and you've heard this message over and over again, but you haven't heard it quite this way before. If this is something you're hearing for the first time, if it's something that you've never trusted Christ for salvation, please make tonight that night. And for those of us that are here that have made the decision to trust Christ by faith alone and repentance... When we hear Christ's words, or when we hear Paul's words about Christ, it fills us with love and hope and joy. But it also may cause us to think about people who don't yet have that knowledge of Christ. Those in our family or our friends who might not yet have trusted him. So it's not only for us, but it's for others as well. Because choosing to transition your life from faith in yourself to faith in Christ, this is something that the Bible makes clear as a decision that we all have to make individually. But as true Christ followers, our job is to be able to help show people the way to follow him authentically. If you trust in the Jesus that Paul describes here, then you can be saved. As we think about that, we're heading into a season where even next week we're going to be having Thanksgiving and then we're going to be having Christmas celebrations after that. And I know what it means to have a burden for people in your family, for friends that you may not see that often, that you know aren't following the Lord. Let tonight be a night where you think about this and think about how you can start the conversation, how the Holy Spirit might be able to help you begin a conversation with somebody that you care about that doesn't know them or know him. So we're going to have some time. Pastor Tommy's going to come and lead us in some worship. But just take time and pray for those people that we know that don't yet follow you or follow Christ. And if you have any questions about what it means to follow Christ, if you have any questions about what it means to engage people in that conversation, please come talk to one of us. Because these are the conversations that we care most about. Because when God called us to be pastors, it was to represent Christ and to share that with other people. So let me pray for us, and we'll lead, in, and we'll uh, finish up in some worship here.